And then there were the patriots who are advocating for revolution, who are advocating for independence. And they all both use the Bible. Uh, the loyalists, of course, they go with Romans 13.1, and we throw this around today everywhere. You know, if it's, if it's uh, for an issue or a cause that I'm agreeing with, I will quote Romans 13.1. If it's not, well, then we kind of forget that passage. Uh, but it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. They also use 1 Peter 2.17. Uh, honor all people, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the king. I mean, it doesn't get any plainer than that, right? Honor the king. And we're supposed to honor the king as uh, the British king. Well, the patriots also had a few verses. They use uh, Micah uh, uh, 6, 8. He told you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so they were talking about their doing justice. They also use Proverbs 29 too. When the righteous become numerous, the people rejoice, and when the wicked rule, the people groan. They automatically put themselves with the righteous group, and of course the Brits and the king, they're the, they're the wicked people, you know, and so we groan for that. And they'll use Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So they were saying we need to be free, we need to follow, Paul calls us to be free, and therefore it justifies the revolution. That's not unusual. We're doing the same thing today. You know, we pick verses of what, what supports my cause, what I like and what I don't like, and, uh, and kind of ignore the other stuff. Another, another author, um, uh, Randolph Richards, he's, uh, I think he teaches at some Presbyterian seminary in the, in the South somewhere. I'm not really sure. Uh, but uh, he used to be a missionary in Indonesia, and he wrote a book called, called uh, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. And he tells this story that when he was in Indonesia that he was uh, preaching at a church, and they invited him to lunch because they, they wanted to pick his brain a little bit and ask his advice on some things. And so they went, he went to lunch, and they were telling him, uh, he said, what did you want to talk about? And they said, well, we've got this couple who moved into the village, and they want to join the church, but we're not so sure we should let them because they're in sin. And he says, okay, uh, well, I can't really help you unless you tell me kind of what the sin is. And he says, well, they... Um, they uh, um, got married on, on the run. In other words, they eloped. And uh, he said, so what's the sin? <laughs> and he said, well, they were just aghast. They said, haven't you read Paul? And he says, you know, I did my Ph.D. dissertation on Paul, so yes, I have read Paul. <laughs> and they said, but didn't you read where it says that children are to obey their parents? And these people obviously had disobeyed their parents. And he realized that as an American, that that command, children should obey their parents, he said, we know that all children don't always obey, but when it comes to the big stuff, you're supposed to obey, like marriage. And he says, but in America, that command, obey your parents, has an expiration date when you're 18. That, that command ends. And my point in all of this is that that we tend to specialize and we look at these one passages or one verses and we build a whole house on it. And uh, then when it doesn't suit our needs anymore, we kind of change it and shift it around or we ignore it and move to something else. And so it kind of is just this kind of random thing. One of my favorite theologians is Fleming Rutledge. Uh, she wrote an excellent book on the atonement, uh, just fantastic. And she says this, in the final analysis, specialized theological knowledge can take us only so far. We need to know the story. 
And what she means by that, in this context, she's talking about the atonement. And you've got all these theories of the cross, of what Jesus did on the cross and what happened on the cross. And everybody builds their house on this one or two or three or four theories of what happened on the cross. And he sa she says, that's fine. That can only take us so far. We have to know the story. In Mark chapter 3, we run right into that head on. We run right into that. The, the scribes and the Pharisees have been specialized in the law, and they're specialized, and they built an entire apparatus on this thing. And you have this basically this, this, this uh, battle between two agendas. You have the Jesus agenda, and then you have the scribes and the Pharisees agenda. One knows the story. One is specialized in theology. Guess which one knows the story? Jesus knows the entire story, and that's what this is all about. It's what is the story. And I think we can, I think we can uh, kind of summarize the story. Uh, I like to summarize it in four questions. And, and when you're talking with someone else who doesn't really know Christ or not really sure what's going on with Christianity, what's the deal here? These four questions can help you tell the story because that's what that's what's matter. It's not a transactional formula that we try to present people you do this and you get that okay the story is basically why is there something rather than nothing why is there something rather than nothing in other words why do why do planets exist why does the sun exist why do we exist why is there something and not nothing and the next question is why is everything so messed up because we have this enemy out there who's personal who wants to destroy it and wants to destroy us. And what, if anything, has God done about it? And the last question is, what is our response? And I think in this little chapter of, of Mark, chapter 3, he pretty much tells the story of those four questions. The story has the section of Mark chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 has the, every element of this story in it. And it's all played out in this battle of these two agendas. And if you're reading Mark superficially, and you're just kind of reading through the book, you're going to say, you're thinking, man, Mark just kind of jumps from one episode to the other, and it's just a bunch of random stories put in there, and uh, we just kind of jump from place to place. That's not true. Mark does do things very quickly, very, very fast, more so than Luke and Matthew, and John is much more poetic and much more symbolic. But Mark kind of just does it really quick, but he's smart. One of, the, one of the errors I think that we 21st century Americans, Westerners, think is that we're smarter than the people who wrote the scriptures. But even the humanly speaking, those people were really smart, okay? Uh, the ancient writers were very bright. And I think Mark arranges his material for a purpose. And I think all these stories, these episodes in chapter 3 are always, are all related. And we know that one knows the story, and the other one knows the rules. You might remember that um, from last week that Jesus just came off these questions. They were asking him questions about, about um, why are you eating with sinners? And, uh, and how come you don't fast on the seasonal fast on these, these occasions like, like the Pharisees and, and John's disciples? And then why are your disciples walking through the cornfields getting corn and eating on a Sabbath? They're not supposed to do that. Well, now in chapter 3, that opposition crescendos, and it reaches a breaking point. And there's no turning back from chapter 3. 
You go from chapter 3, and it is, it is all in. The shadow of the cross starts to fall on Jesus in chapter 3, and it is quite the, the opposite. Uh, this <clears throat> it kind of all started in chapter 1 when Jesus uh, uh, cast out the unclean spirit in the synagogue, and then it just kind of builds from there. And here we have the story of a man with a withered hand in a synagogue. And we're not going to read the whole chapter because it's really long, but there are two sections that I specifically want to read, and we'll talk about the others. Okay. Verses 1 through 6. I could probably read from my Bible and not have to turn around. That's what I'll do. Uh, then Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man there who had a withered hand was there. They watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. So he said to the man who had the withered hand, Stand up among all these people. And then he said, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil, to save a life or destroy it? But they were silent. And after looking around at them in anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, Jesus said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And so the Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians on how they could assassinate him. What the thing is, the man was there when Jesus arrived. And what the Pharisees are concerned about is, is Deuteronomy 18, 13, 18. And again, let's see if we can find that here. Okay. Thus much obey the Lord. You must obey the Lord your God, keeping all of his commandments that I am giving you today and do what is right before him. That's the final verse of, Ch of Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you want to read something chilling, read that chapter. Because that's what they do. That's about how they deal with false teachers. And it describes these false teachers who do all these magical things and kind of weird stuff. And, and, and Moses is saying that if he is leading you to idolatry, you need to take him out and stone him. Okay? So that's the question. Is Jesus leading the people astray? They're taking his power to heal for granted. They kind of say, okay, we admit that. But it's supernatural. But is it supernatural from God or is it supernatural from Satan? And that's what they're asking. And so what they're there for, they're looking at, the man is in the temple, in the synagogue, and they're waiting for Jesus to heal this guy. And then they're going to see what they're going to accuse him of Deuteronomy chapter 13 worthy of execution so they're waiting on that and when they're saying they're waiting on that it makes me think that the guy is a plant he is a he is a, a tool for them to use to accuse Jesus that I believe they were he was planted there and I think that is the ultimate in dehumanization they don't care one bit about his condition. They are there to achieve a religious and a political goal, and they're willing to use him. That is the ultimate in dehumanization. He is not even human. He's just a tool. And they've got him there to look to see if Jesus is going to do it. And so Jesus raises the question, is it, do you do good on the Sabbath or do you do evil? Do you kill somebody, which is what they're plotting to do, or do you heal somebody? Do you save somebody's life? And of course, they're silent. Of course, they can't answer them. They can't answer that. And so Jesus heals the man. He does the right thing of what you do. 
The first gift that Jesus gave him was that Jesus saw him. He saw him and took pity on him and loved him. We humans need that like we need bread and water. We need to be seen and recognized like we need food. And that's what Jesus does for him. And of course, they start thinking, well, it must be Satan. We need to talk about how we can kill him. And what's interesting here is you have the Pharisees and the Herodians together. Two very unlikely bedfellows, okay? You have the religious people who are really strict with the law. They know the scriptures. They are theologically specialized, okay, like Fleming Rutledge says. And then you have the Herodians who are basically the aristocrats who are all about the king. So you have the political power and the religious power together, and they don't like what Jesus is doing, and so they plot to kill him. And then this leads us to Jesus leaving. And you think, looking at Mark, you go, wow, these two, these two paragraphs, I mean, they're so out of nowhere, but they're not. He leaves, and he goes out to the sea, and what does Mark say? That the crowds are following him. And Jesus even asked, can you get me a boat? Because the crowds are so big, they're going to crush me. So I can stand in the boat. The crowds are so big. Because he's basically saying, after this incident, the crowd has two choices. They can either say, yes, Jesus is a false prophet. He deserves to be executed. Or they will follow him. The crowd follows him. The crowd follows him to the river, to the Sea of Galilee. And they're there to be received. That's the big difference. And then right after that, right after they follow him, he decides to go up into the mountain, and he does this other episode that doesn't seem related at all, but it is. And he goes up into the mountain to name the 12 apostles. Why? What, did Mark, what is Mark saying here? What he's saying here is that the ministry continues. It moves forward anyway. The agenda moves on. Jesus moves on doing what he's called to do. And he goes on and he's healing and he's calling people to follow him. And he heals these people and he casts out these demons and he's cast out these unclean spirits and they, they confess that you are the son of God and Jesus says, be quiet. Why does he tell them to be quiet? Because they can confess the truth but they cannot follow him. And he's saying that if you're going to confess that I am the son of God, you need to follow me. And that's what, Jesus, that's what the crowd's doing, and that's what he does when he goes to the mountain, kind of like Moses, and names the 12 apostles. Very symbolic. Why 12? Well, there's 12 tribes of Israel. They pretty much are obliterated. Uh, the 10 tribes were just completely dispersed because of the Syrian conquering, and the other two are kind of still there because of the Babylon capt captivity, but they're still around, but basically they're non-existent. And what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm starting the new Israel. I'm beginning something new, the new creation. This is going to be the new Israel. And it's not going to be just ethnic Jews. It's going to be everybody. Because Jesus is now the true representative. He is the true king of Israel, so he can do this. According to the Hebrews, you know, that quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 10, that says this is the real, this is the real king. And the Psalm that, that Rob read earlier, 24, this is the real king. He is the representative. He's not replacing Israel. He's expanding Israel to include the Gentiles. And that's what he's doing. He's renewing this. And he's also saying this is what true leadership looks like. Because he says, 
He tells the, tells the disciples, now you go and heal. You go out and cast unclean spirits. You go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so this is what real leadership looks like. There's one leadership that tries to, tries to control and tries to, to order and make sure everything, that they are the, the, the right, kind of, right kind of Jews and do all the right things. And then there's this other kind of leadership that heals, cares, proclaims the freedom, proclaims good news, proclaims redemption. That's the leaders he wants. That's the people who follow him. They can be tyrannical or they can be servants. And that's what he's calling this leadership to do. Very, very different than we have with the scribes and the Pharisees. Almost all religions try to distinguish the holy and the unholy, the sacred and the profane, the good and the bad, you know, and they've developed these systems, and these, they have these leaders who, are, who study the Bible or study the, the, the Bhagavad Gita or the study, study the Quran or whatever so that they can tell people what's holy and what's unholy. It's for people like me to have a job <laughs> so that I can study the scriptures and tell you what's holy and unholy. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, that's not the leadership we have here. That's not what we're talking about. These leaders serve, heal, care for. That's what you're called to do. You're called to proclaim freedom, not, not control. Not become specialist in one area of theology so that you can control everything else. This is the difference. And that's why I think these two episodes are related to what go, what's going on here. I think Mark is drawing this contrast to what Jesus is doing compared to what the authorities are doing. So that's what we see. And then we move on to the opposition of the kingdom that takes a dark turn. Jesus is back after the mountain, and he goes home. And there's a crowd in the house. And again, the crowd is following him, and it's so big, and the crowd is so big that they don't even have time to eat. Uh, Mark likes to do this, by the way. This is just kind of a side parenthesis thing. Mark likes to do this. He likes to introduce a topic and then go on to something else and then come back to it, kind of like a sandwich. But he relates them all. And so Jesus comes home, and he thinks he's going to find uh, a welcoming people, but his family rejects him. He doesn't find welcoming there. And they're outside how interesting it is that they're on the outside of the house and the crowd is on the inside of the house. And then he picks up back to the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the families are saying that Jesus, you know, and I kind of sympathize with the family because I think they're trying to protect him maybe and it may be trying to protect themselves, but they're kind of worried about him and they're saying, okay, Jesus, you're really courting with disaster here. You're really in danger here. And you're endangering, endangering us as well. And I think we need to deal with this. And so they, they give you this false explanation of what's going on. They say, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. We can't listen to him. He, we can't deal with him. And they say that we want to they they take him and, and control him. And the word that's used here is the same word used to arrest. It's a violent word. And they want to grab hold of Jesus and, and get him out. And I think maybe they might have his best interest at heart, at least their family interest at heart, because the family is so important in the ancient world. It's the axis for all society. It's where you get your vocation, your personality, your connections, all this together. 
And so it's very, very difficult for them. And so they say, he's crazy. He's mad. And of course, in that century, when you said someone was mad, it meant a demon. Well, then the scribes come back and say, no, he's not possessed by a demon. He's possessed by the prince of demons. He's possessed by Beelzebub. He's possessed by Satan himself. That takes a really dark turn. Isaiah 49 says, Then all humankind will recognize that I am the Lord, your deliverer, your protector, the powerful ruler of Jacob. He's saying that this is what he is, Jesus is claiming that for himself. And they're saying, oh, you are, you are crazy. You are, you are possessed by Beelzebub. And Jesus, Jesus says that their accusations are ridiculous. He says, your accusations are ridiculous because a house divided cannot stand. So with all due respect to Abraham Lincoln, who gave a speech on this <laughs> about the Civil War, Jesus is talking about the, 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 the rule of Satan is crumbling. But it's not crumbling because the house is divided upon itself. It's crumbling because the king has arrived. The king has landed. And that's why Satan's rule is crumbling. He said, that's the reason. And he describes himself as the, the powerful one who is coming to bind the strong man and plunder his house. What a great word picture. Jesus seems to like that idea. He uses that a lot. So does, so does Paul and so does John, the, the apostle John, that Jesus' arrival is like a thief in the night. And Jesus says, the king has come, and you bind the strong man, and you plunder the house. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's binding the strong man and plundering the house. Who is he plundering? Women, men, children, us. What he is doing, he is releasing men and women and children from the power of Satan. And he's binding the strong man. Mark is finally coming clean. When John said, well, there's going to be somebody stronger than me that's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Well, finally, Mark is saying right up front, this is the man. This is the strong man. This is the man who's binding the strong man and plundering the goods of the house. This is why Satan's house, his rule is crumbling. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were orthodox upholders. They believed in the Torah and everything and, and, and and uh, all the, the rules and the laws that they were going. And Jesus was not saying I, the Torah is bad. He's saying your interpretation is bad. Your application is bad. That's what's wrong. You are, you are confusing the two. You're confusing them. He uh, committed an act of civil disobedience. He healed a guy on the Sabbath. And civil disobedience is violating kind of a, a minor law so that you can raise the issue of something deeper and something important. And that's what he's doing. And he says, he says, everyone is forgiven but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
He goes on to tell them, he says, I tell you the truth, people will be forgiven for all sins, even all the blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they said he had an unclean spirit. Famous verse, right? So we're going to deal with that. What is Jesus saying here? What is he talking about here? It turns out the one that's on trial is not Jesus, but the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones on trial. They're the ones guilty, not of just a sin, but a horrifying sin. And every now and then I'll, I'll get people to come up to me and say, I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin. This is what is called the unforgivable sin. I, I'm afraid I've, I've done that. And even I have thought that. Did I, did I accidentally say something? Did I accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And, and did I commit the unforgivable sin? Well, let me tell you, if you worry about that, I can almost tell you 100% certain that you're not guilty of it. Okay? So just relax if you're concerned about it. So what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about, he's saying that if you're saying what I'm doing in the power of the Holy Spirit is the power of Satan, then you've shut yourself off. You, you, you've locked the door. You've barred the door. It's kind of like what philosophers call the analytic truth, where you compare two things, and they, they are both true, and they're almost synonyms. Like I could say, oh, all pediatricians are doctors. That's true. In our language, if you're a pediatrician, you're a doctor. But if I were to say all pediatricians are rich, well, that may be my experience, but that's not necessarily always true. So I think what Jesus is saying is that these things are true, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the same thing as barring the door. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to say that what Jesus is doing in the power of the Holy Spirit is of an evil spirit, you have locked the door, barred the door, and you don't, you don't get to enjoy any of the resources of the kingdom of God. You don't get to enjoy forgiveness. You don't get to enjoy redemption. You don't get to enjoy the abundant life, the abundant love. You don't enjoy that. You don't get to enjoy that. And it's not a one-time thing. We think blasphemy is something that comes out of your mouth at one event. Blasphemy is more of a mindset, an attitude, a way of life. And so if your way of life is to say what Jesus is doing and Jesus is saying is really of the devil and really of Satan, then you're not going to be enjoying the redemption, the abundant life, the, the, the love of God. It's just not true. You just can't. You have to recognize that what he is doing is of the Spirit. And finally, we get to the last paragraph, the campaign climax with the home. Then Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters, the brothers and brothers came standing outside. They sent word to him to summon him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. He answered them and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him in a circle, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. And again, on first reading, that may sound kind of harsh. But again, he's not shrinking the family. He's expanding it. That's, don't forget that one little word. It's two letters in Greek. Whoever. I don't know if, it's, if, I don't know if they translate it like that or not. It says who. But in, in the original, it says whoever does this. The invitation is open. You have a blanket forgiveness. Anyone can come. He's not trying to 
exclude people. He's trying to include people, for one thing. The second thing he is saying is that sometimes we do have to make a choice. There are times where we do have to make a choice, where people have to make a choice to follow Jesus or their family. And Jesus is saying, you, you need to follow me. It doesn't mean we stop loving them. But it does mean that sometimes we've got to make a choice. Probably here in the West, not much of a big deal, maybe. But if you're a Muslim, it's a big deal. Sometimes we have to make the choice. And Jesus is saying, whoever, whoever. And of course, we know by the end of the story that most of his family did finally come around after the resurrection. I mean, James, his brother, was leader of the Jerusalem church. So we do know they kind of come around. But they say that he's gone too far, but he's not, he's not destroying the family. He's just saying that there's no going back. The challenge to authority here in chapter 3 is done. And that last question, okay, what's God doing? And how do I respond if he is doing something? That's what he leaves us with in chapter 3. How do we respond? Do we follow him or not? And then in chapter 4 next week, we will see a very beautiful parable about that following, about our response. So Mark's gospel is, Mark's gospel is God's story. And remember God's story. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is everything messed up? Why is God doing about it? And what is our response if he is doing something about it? I heard a preacher say once that um, he said symbols are a part of reality. And the devil exists as a symbolic reality, not a personal reality. I disagree with that. I think he is real, and I think he has a strategy, and I think he's out to destroy us, and I think we need to know his nature and his character, that he's not just a symbol, that he's actually somebody who takes this thing personally. And he's out to kill and steal and destroy, and his, and his tools are our accusations, our division, our temptations, our discouragements. These, those are his tools, the division. He will use flattery to build our ego up and then knock us under. That is his strategy. But God's plan is to rescue us. And that's what this story is about. That's what Jesus has come to do is to rescue us. John's powerful man is Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, <clears throat> said that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and you might say, landed in disguise. And we know Jesus, we, we understand Jesus to be kind and gentle and compassionate and meek and merciful and loving. And he is all those things, but he is also the king that Rob read about in Psalm 24. He is the unconquerable king, the Lord of the earth. And we can be free of that. We can be free from, because he is binding the strong man. And that's what we're going to celebrate in communion uh, this morning. That we are going to remember that the strong man has been bound. And he is plundering the strong man's house. In other words, he is releasing us from the power of the strong man.
<clears throat> the devil still likes to use his tools of accusations and lies and flattery and all the temptation, discouragement and depression. But all those things keep us in slavery. The consequences of all those things is slavery. But the more powerful one has come and he's bound the strong man. And we can be free of that. He will still use his tools, but we can be free. And communion is a time to do that. Uh, Sue is reading this book with um, a young woman who used to come to our church here, Shepherd of the Valley, but then she abandoned us. She got married and moved to LaGrande. But, <laughs> but she's reading this book, but, but they developed a friendship, and they're reading this book together even at a distance. And she was reading something to me the other day out of it, and I thought it was really good, and I thought, well, this is really uh, appropriate for binding the strong man. And so I w I'm gonna, we're going to do some things uh, to prepare ourselves for the table uh, this morning and uh, some time in silence. So um, asking Jesus to bind the strong man as we prepare. And um, I'm just going to mention three of her observations from this, this book. I'm going to borrow them or steal them one way or the other and, uh, and walk us through them, these things that are hidden in our souls that enslave us. And so I was just going to spend some time in quiet, just a few minutes. Um, it's already 11 o'clock, so we'll just spend a few minutes in quiet, and I will just guide us through here. Uh, one of the things that is hidden in our souls is guilt, guilt of things that are not our fault. But Satan can use those things to enslave us. He has successfully blamed us until God exposes him as the liar that he is. And so the constant sense that we have of I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I, I, I blew it, is tied to these sometimes traumatic, traumatic memories. And they can be, you know, abuse as we were children, uh, bullied, uh, sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse. It can be chronic illness that for some reason we think that is our fault. That we're in pain because something I did is blamed. Well, we need to recognize that our condemner is actually the condemned one. Amen. And so we can receive the healing that Jesus offers. And we can engage in faith to trust him to be our defender. And so I want to just spend a, maybe a minute in silence and just let the Lord bring to surface maybe some of those memories that maybe Satan has used to enslave you, but it's not your fault. Also hidden in our souls is guilt for things that we have done. Sins we have committed, but Jesus has forgiven us. But they keep coming back to haunt us. Uh, they're in our memories associated with us times that, that we've, we know has been fully sorted out with God. But because of that, our memories are still there. And the enemy still continues to accuse us of those things. 
So thankfully, Jesus continues to intercede for us. So why does the enemy get to keep on accusing us then? 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. So spend a couple of minutes or so asking the Lord for a fresh understanding that forgiveness is, forgiveness is final. It's taken care of. And finally, when we willing, willfully engage in sin or, and or secretly indulge in ways that hold us captive, the enemy has a legal right to accuse us. He is a legalist after all. And he will look for any opportunity to take us down. Let's spend the next 30 seconds or so asking God that we lose that taste for whatever it is, that weaknesses, that weakness that is keeping us enslaved and asking for forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have, um, that you don't have this hierarchy of sins that when we reach a limit, we, um, we expend all the, our, our allotment of grace that you've given us, that that, that that grace is eternal and is infinite. And so, Father, we are asking for the grace this morning to have the unshakable confidence in the Lord of the earth, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We want to welcome you to the table this morning.